I don't know where my future was gonna go, but Gabe, she forged a path for me, right? And she gave me almost a call to action from that episode, and it really had this divine impact on my life and completely flipped my purpose on its head. It, it really has rewritten my script in terms of what I want to do with the rest of my days because I, you know, I'm I'm still living with cancer, even though medically it may be out of me, but it you're never cancer free, as I said before, right? So the best thing that I can do is to honor those who weren't able to continue to move their mission forward, right? So and that carries, you know, the, and as a consequence, you know, you carry weight as a result of that, which I'm also having to deal with. But, you know, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to carry that weight because, you know, if if I don't do it, I mean, who's to say anyone else is going to do it, right? What's up, everyone? That was Phil Shin. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. This is a long episode, so I'm going to keep the intro as short as I can. This conversation that I had with Phil Shin is one of the most meaningful and impactful exchanges I've ever had for the podcast. Please listen to it. All two hours of it. Phil is 51 years old, he's a husband and a father, he's a Boston Marathon qualifier, and he is outrunning cancer one mile at a time. He's actually going to run this year's race on April 18th with his liver donor and friend, Mark Murphy, who will be running his first marathon. Phil's story is incredible, his message is inspiring, and I feel so honored to have the opportunity to share this episode with you. Before we dive in, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam 1080 V11. It's comfortable, it's responsive, and it is super durable. This is the shoe that I've run most of my miles in over the past year or so, and it's never let me down. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Precision Fuel and Hydration, who have a range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best. Here's the deal. Everyone sweats differently, and the amount of fuel that we require varies depending on factors like the duration and intensity of our activity, so a one-size-fits-all approach to fueling and hydration just doesn't cut it. Head to precisionfuelandhydration.com and use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. Then book a free one-on-one video consultation with the team to refine your hydration and fueling strategy for your next race. 
I cannot stress how important and valuable this can be as we get into the spring racing season here over these next few months. I've done the consultation myself and I've been a devotee to Precision Fuel and Hydration's products for a few years now. And their team has helped ensure that my hydration and fueling strategies for training and racing are rock solid. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TMS22 when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. That's capital T, capital M, capital S, 22 when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. And last but not least, member and lottery registration for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia, is going on right now. The race returns to one day this year and will take place on Monday, July 4th. This is one of America's classic road races. It's long been on my bucket list. I haven't run it yet. I don't think I'm going to be able to get there and do it this year because of scheduling conflicts, but I do hope to line up in Atlanta sometime in the next few years. Atlanta Track Club members receive guaranteed and lowest price entry. If you're not a member of the ATC, you do not need to live in Atlanta to be one. You can join today and then sign up for Peachtree and get in no problem at all. Non-members must enter through the lottery and will be notified if selected on April 4th. In-person registration is only open until March 31st. Virtual registration is open until May 31st. You can register today at ajc.com slash peachtree. That's ajc.com slash peachtree. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with the amazing Phil Shin. I want to just jump right into the deep end with you. The main thing that I'm trying to do through all my work really is to show other people what's possible for themselves through the lens of running. And I'm interested to learn from you, how has running opened your eyes to possibility in your own life? Yeah, we we definitely jumped right into the ocean there, didn't we? (laughs) So, um, yeah, uh, I would definitely say that my relationship with running wasn't the traditional path that you've had with many of your guests um a lot of your guests have probably had a relationship with running that would usually was competition based uh whether it was from high school college professional me i just happened to be turning 30 one year and i was looking to do something significant so i thought i'd just go ahead and run a marathon <laughs> i'd never run anything longer than a lap around the baseball field when i you know played baseball in high school so um didn't train for, you know, any particular distance, but I saw that, you know, the LA marathon was going to be happening in about four days. So I thought, well, Hey, that's kind of cool. Let's do this. <laughs> right. So, um, this is back at the 2000 LA marathon. And that was you know, back then you could actually sign up for the LA marathon, like the day of. So yeah, I decided just, you know, go ahead and sign up for it and, you know, say, Hey, this is how I'm going to celebrate turning 30. I'm going to run a freaking marathon so um turned out to be not the 
one of the wiser decisions uh, of my life. Um, I didn't know anything about, you know, running shoes or, you know, uh, you know, moisture wicking, you know, uh, technology for, you know, running clothes. So I turned up on the day with the cotton t-shirt that they gave me, you know, in my, with my registration. Yeah, like the Hanes heavy tea type of thing. Exactly, exactly. So this, again, this was 2000, right? And I just showed up in my Bojacks and cross trainers, you know, tube socks and decided to just go out. But it also happened to be the wettest marathon at the time on record. So we got about three inches of rain that day, which is extremely unusual for Los Angeles, right? So, um, you know how they say that, you know, you shouldn't do anything new leading up to a marathon. Well, everything I was experiencing that day was new to me. (laughs) So, yeah, it was, it, it, I mean, it was definitely not a good day and it wasn't a great experience, but, you know, I ended up finishing at exactly six hours, which now looking back on it, actually, I thought that's actually a pretty good time if you think about it with zero. Yeah, training, right? it's a great time. Yeah. I mean, I, I was definitely four days in four days <laughs> and it wasn't training, right? It was just, okay. No, I have four days <laughs> to figure out where it's going to start, right? And what I should eat. And I, I remember just gorging myself on, on pasta the day before, right? Because this is like very early days internet, right? So it's not like mm-hmm. I could like just Google runner's world, you know, in, you know, in terms of what I should do, you know, the day before a marathon. So so I just thought, well, I've heard about carbo loading. So I guess I should eat about three pounds of pasta and, and then I'm good to go. So, so I, after that marathon, I definitely just stayed completely away from running. I turned 30. I reverted back to my very poor health habits of, you know, beer and fried snacks and really didn't come back to it until, you know, I ended up taking a job in London and, uh, London, it's a very, very running oriented, uh, um, not society, but, you know, you can find it. They have a very strong running culture there. And the group that I happen to be working with, they would always go out on lunchtime runs so I would join them, and it was just a simple lunchtime run. And even though I was a particular fast, we had a great time. So, so from there, I I, I basically made it a part of my you know uh, regular routine. And then uh, when we returned to the U.S. Uh, some years later, um, the 2005 LA Marathon was rolling in. I thought, okay, I think I have a good base of running, and I get an understanding now that I should actually like train for a marathon in more than four days so this time I took you know the time to actually train for it and this time I ended up cutting like an hour from that time but more importantly I actually finished that marathon really enjoying myself so then from there I made running like a part of my life um so for the next you know 10 years I would say before my cancer diagnosis running was very much you know part of me so once I got my diagnosis, that's when running kind of like not only became something that would benefit me through my diagnosis from a medical and health perspective, but I would say mentally and um, mentally and emotionally, it really became a lifeline to me. So um, I guess that's like the long way of answering your question in terms of, you know, <laughs> what running, um, you know, through that lens of running and what I've been going through, it's very much been intertwined together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of parallels in terms of going through, you know, a long, um, um, uh, a long health 
you know, health uh, diagnosis that I'm trying to, you know, navigate through because there's so much uncertainty. But, you know, I, 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 I was very intentional in trying to keep, keep my days with my diagnosis, you know, day by day. Right. So and just trying to find those little increments of improvement, obviously not physically because it's cancer, but, you know, at least being able to tackle and manage through, you know, the emotional challenges of living with that diagnosis. Going back to that first marathon and even beyond when you moved to London and you were doing some lunchtime runs with your colleague at that point of your relationship with running, did it unlock anything for you that you previously weren't aware of or didn't know about yourself? Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely felt like it added this layer of perspective that I probably wouldn't have had, right? So um, whenever I was having a bad day and, you know, I, you know my wife and I, we, had, we, we definitely had challenges, you know, uh, in our family, you know, as uh, a new family, because our, our son was actually born uh, extremely premature, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was fighting day by day because he was born uh, three months premature. So he was actually in uh, the intensive care unit, the NICU, for uh, four months. And every single day was like a marathon for him, right? And rather than trying to look at it from a macro perspective in terms of like what he what challenges he has in front of him we were really just kind of especially me i was just trying to find those daily improvements you know those daily wins that he had whether it meant you know oh his oxygen level stayed above 90 percent you know throughout the day i mean i i took that as a win right so mm-hmm. um and i really do feel like you know through running right being able to have that perspective that you get when you go on a run, it really, it it really added a layer of thought in terms of how I approach things, and it continues to do so, you know, to this day. At what point did running feel like it was a part of your personality or how you identified yourself? Um, I would say for sure. Um, when I felt like I was actually good enough, because even after finishing a couple of marathons, and I'm sure we heard this many times, but I never really called myself a runner. I was just the guy silly yeah. enough to just try to run a marathon and finish it okay. But I'm still not a runner, right? But once I got inch closer and closer to that Boston qualifying time, that's when I really identified with myself as a runner. And I felt like that, that was almost like a necessity for me to try and, become a Boston qualifying, you know, runner. So, and I would say that probably happened around 2016 when I finally broke like the four hour mark at the LA marathon. So I, and I knew that I was only about, well, not only, but I was 20 minutes away from getting to, um, uh, that Boston qualifying time. Um, so when I, I hired my first coach, that's when I said, okay, I am a runner now. I mean, it didn't, it didn't guarantee me qualifying for Boston, certainly, but I right. almost felt like I needed to uh, brand myself with that tag just so that I can now hold myself accountable to to try and qualify for the Boston Marathon. 
It's interesting to hear you describe that because I've definitely heard that from other runners, whether they've run a marathon or not. Oftentimes the marathoners will say, I'm not a runner because I'm nowhere near qualifying for Boston. And for some reason, it's that designation like Boston qualifier that makes me a runner, which is like the, the stupidest thing and furthest thing from the truth. And then when I worked in specialty running, I'd have people come in the store all the time. And I mean, they would say, I'm not really a runner. I just run 5Ks. And I'm, I'm interested to just get your perspective on this. Why did you and why do you think a lot of runners in general are hesitant to identify themselves that way until they run a marathon or qualify for Boston or do this or that? I, I, I think we're all as runners, um, even those who don't proclaim themselves to be runners, I think we get caught up in the comparison, right? So mm-hmm. whether you're running with a group or you happen to be on Strava and you're, you know, you're stalking other runners, you, you can't help but compare yourself with how other people run, not only how they run in terms of pace, but how they look, right? So mm-hmm. until you hit this ridiculous imaginary marker, whether it's a time, whether it's your weight, whether it's the type of running clothes you're wearing, that officially dignifies you as you know a runner, which again, it's, it's entirely stupid. And I work with a lot of people in, you know, in the transplant community and the cancer community. And they're telling me, look, I'm, I'm nowhere near, you know, like a runner like you, I'm nowhere near a runner like you are. I said, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, the fact that, you know, you're living, you know, with uh, a transplant uh, or you're living with cancer, the fact that you're even attempting to go for, you know, a run down the block, that makes you 10 times stronger than any runner who isn't faced with the challenges that you are. So I've definitely had to flip my own mindset, right, in terms of what I defined a runner to be. I have, and in fact, you know, I, I'll go so far as to say I have far more respect and admiration. I'm inspired by more of the folks that are in the back of the middle to the back of the pack of marathons. Because those are the runners, right, who are truly running for something, right? And mm-hmm. they're battling something extremely uncomfortable, right, uh, compared to those that are on the flip side of that pack, right? So, um, yeah, so I, my entire mindset and attitude has completely changed, despite the fact that I personally, I, I've gotten a little bit faster and I'm able to qualify for Boston. I'm rooting harder for those you know, who haven't achieved those goals yet or who may not ever achieve those goals because they're doing it for something far beyond than just uh, a time on a digital clock. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so important that regardless of what ability level we are, how much experience we have in this sport, that we just encourage others to stick with it, especially those who may never qualify for Boston or even run a marathon or, or whatever it may be, because even if you can't do those things or you don't want to do those things, which is totally fine too, you have all the reason in the world to stick with it. And I think it's reminding yourself the reasons why you run and really holding that uh, very close to you. Yes, absolutely. Thinking about this period in time when you did get closer to the Boston qualifier. You're 20 minutes or so away. You feel 
that you're at a point where you should hire a coach to help you maybe get to that next level. You start to think of yourself a little bit differently. How did your relationship to it change then? Because that wasn't all that long ago for you. No. And it's a it's a great question. And I think that that period in my life, and I think my coach will agree with you, that, that was a period in my life when I probably had the most difficult relationship with running because I felt like I was chasing something that wouldn't allow me to catch it. <laughs> and um, I found that I became quite type A about things where I had to hit certain workouts and, you know, I was ignoring, you know, what my body was telling me um, in terms of, okay, look, I've got a niggle here that's actually leading to a potential injury or I'm feeling burnout. You know, I, I, I was almost like, running against my own will right and and i think it was really honestly because i was chasing that silly qualifying time and you know that's when i just kind of realized that you know there's a reason why the symbol of the boston marathon is a unicorn because the more you try and chase it right the harder it's going to be to catch it right (laughs) i never thought of that yeah so that's when i honestly just kind of had to just stop and reset and just say, Hey, look, I just need to take a mental break from running. I'll continue to just run, but I'm not going to think about boss. I'm not going to think about anything related to, you know, qualifying for that damn race. I just want to try and fall back in love with running. And then the timing of that's really ironic because that's when I actually ended up getting diagnosed with cancer. Right. So, um, when I ran the 2018 marathon, LA marathon, I actually ran that one for uh, just for the joy of running. I had no intention of actually like, you know, qualifying. I wasn't racing it at all. So I actually tried to make it a fun event and a meaningful event because I I remember specifically that I was raising money, you know, uh, to – to support uh for parkinson's so i ran for uh the the parkinson's alliance and i raised some money and this is like my first experience for for running with running for something beyond myself so Mm -hmm. when i crossed the finish line for the 2018 la marathon i ended up falling back in love with running and i was ready to hop back on that horse and see you know what i was capable of doing you know uh with running, uh, whether it's qualifying for Boston or just simply becoming the best runner that I can be. I'm sitting here and nodding my head. And I think a lot of people listening to this are probably doing the same thing because your story is not an uncommon one in that regard. I mean, I've coached a number of folks who were aiming for that Boston qualifier or Olympic trials qualifier, even just a personal best. So, I mean, this can be any runner across the ability spectrum. And when they they set that goal, and there's nothing wrong with setting that goal, but they tell themselves, I'm really taking this seriously now, or I am going to chase this BQ because if I hit that, then I'm a runner, or I want to be part of this exclusive company that is going to run the Olympic trials marathon. More often than not, there's an initial backfire that happens. And you said you became more type A. I think a lot of runners are already type A, and it just takes them to like type A plus in that type of situation. And 
we end up getting to a point in our conversations where I have to tell them, remind yourself why you got into this in the first place, not why you were chasing the trials qualifier or the BQ or the personal best, but why you got into running in the first place. And it's not an immediate shift, but if they can do that and get to that place and remind themselves like, hey, I do this because I enjoy it or because I enjoy pushing myself or I like being around my friends or I like the excitement of a, a race environment. It really helps bring them back to center and maybe not right away, but certainly over time, eventually they end up doing what they want to do. They hit that breakthrough, but they've almost gone from focusing on it so intently to just having to kind of pull back and find that happy medium to unlock the possibility. Exactly. Exactly. I, I just, for those that are, you know, as to remember back, you know, I definitely, you know, I guess the message would be definitely don't sign up for a marathon four days before it because that was definitely not the reason that that was just uh just a moment of sheer soup but i again i think it just kind of goes back to you know finding your why and then using that to reinvigorate you know your uh your your love for running your love for movement and that that really helped me and it was really honestly mario it was really just kind of letting go of trying to run for a goal i because if you think about it i I had already kind of achieved that goal it's kind of corny but the fact that i just enjoyed running i I just enjoyed being able to just have the ability to go out for a run i mean that that's really what it's all about right and you know the way that i've kind of viewed um you know, those that have aspirations of qualifying for Boston, if you simply just try and become the best runner that you're capable of being, that unicorn is going to come to you. You no longer have mm-hmm. to chase it. It's going to come to you. And that's what I've stressed to, you know, all my, because I, you know, I, I've been able to uh, uh, create this amazing community of runners. I mean, the runners that have already been there, but just to, to have that now be a part of my life. And because I've had some moderate, you know, uh, success myself, qualifying for Boston and doing things like that, they, the, you know, the, they continue to ask me, you know, what it takes to run, you know, qualify for Boston. And I just said, look, put that aside, just be the best runner that you can be and do the right things. And before you know it, you know, it, it's just going to come to you. That time's going to come to you rather than you having to get to that time. Yeah, that's an amazing takeaway. I appreciate you sharing that. It reminds me of this quote or proverb, really, that says, in archery, you aim at the target and then you focus on the process. So you kind of, I tell my athletes, set it and forget it. So set the goal, forget it, and then get back to the fundamentals of one, why you enjoy this and started doing it in the first place. And then two, controlling what you can control on a given day to make yourself the best version of yourself that you can be. And if you can do that day in and day out or more days than not, you are going to set yourself on the path to where it is that you want to go. 100%. Couldn't have. Yeah. You should be a coach, Mario. I mean, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) So lucky for me. Yeah. Um, You've mentioned your cancer diagnosis a couple times now. And that came after the 2018 LA Marathon. Tell me about that day and take me through it to the degree that you're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, it, it It's interesting because it honestly, it ties back to my son who was born inauspiciously. He had an inauspicious start 
you know, to this world. Uh, he was micro preemie and, um, you know, children that are born extremely premature, they have a number of challenges that they have to face because for, you know, that period that they were, that they came into this world that they should have been in the womb, the doctors basically need to replicate, you know, the womb uh, for that child for the duration of the time that they were actually expected to be delivered. So as a result, you know, my, my son had a number of health challenges, but one of the biggest challenges that he had is he developed a hearing impairment. So he was born hearing impaired and he had um, just a number of hearing aids that he had to go through. And um, my work, uh, by the time he got to uh, about uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, his hearing aids kind of kept breaking down on him and uh, hearing aids are, they're just really expensive. And the insurance that I had with my work didn't uh, subsidize any of the costs of his hearing aids. So going back to my work insurance plans, they actually did have uh, one particular plan that uh, fully subsidized the cost of his hearing aids. So, well, since he needed new hearing aids, let's just go ahead and switch to this insurance plan. As a result, I had to switch primary doctors so I met with the primary doctor in uh, early 2018, right before that LA Marathon. And I let him know that, okay, this is who I am. He gave me the full exam and he, uh, I shared with him uh, that my family had a history of hepatitis. So I knew that I, w- that I had the hepatitis uh, gene in me and my, I guess I had the virus, but you know, I, be- because of my running and my intent to be the best runner, I, you know, I, I, I tried to keep all the uh, good habits that you know runners have, right? So I, I, I was very thoughtful with my nutrition, my sleep, um, obviously physical activity. So I told him that I was fine, and my previous doctor also knew this, and he was monitoring me, and he felt that you know I was fine, and you know uh, just kind of keep doing what I'm doing, and you know the hepatitis shouldn't you know, the virus shouldn't really activate and, you know, cause you uh, liver problems. Well, the new doctor didn't know me. So he just said, look, let's just go ahead and get you in for the full panel of liver blood tests. So I went in, I had the uh, blood tests taken. And um, after the marathon, he called me in for a follow-up appointment. And that's when the blood test results indicated that there was a mass growing in my liver. So... That's when I was first informed that there might be something funny going on with me. But you weren't experiencing any physical symptoms that gave you cause for alarm? No. So the liver, I mean, it's a very resilient organ. It's probably one of the most resilient organs in the body. Mm-hmm. So even even with cancer in it, it, that was like the first step in me confirming that it was cancer. Because it could have been anything. So... But one of the uh, blood tests that they ran on me, it's a, a, it's a protein uh, level um, uh, diagnosis. So it's called the AFP. And my tumor marker on it was extremely high. So a normal scale uh, for a healthy person without liver disease, it's anywhere between zero to eight. Mine was over 5,000. So that was like the Holy first. Holy cow. Yeah. So that was like the first red flag but it could have been anything right so they could have been they said it, it might be a really big cyst or it could just be a super crazy false 
positive. So, um, so I had to go in for an MRI next, and or I'm sorry, I had to go in for an ultrasound first, and then I came back and they did confirm that okay, there's definitely something in there. It's about the size of a racquetball. So let's take a closer look to see whether or not this is really cancer. So I went in, did the MRI, came back. They said yes, it's definitely. It's definitely a cancer, but we don't know if it's malignant or if it's benign. So let's go ahead and get you in for a CT scan. And CT scan, that's when you're getting the full-scale radiation, right? And it's super uncomfortable. Uh, because it was on my abdomen, they had to you know, um, inject me with the contrast. So that's when... My family and I realized that, okay, this is no longer about, you know, that there might be something wrong with me. It's probably there is something wrong with me. Now we just need to figure out, you know, what the breadth of, you know, this uh, issue is with me. So after the CT scan results, they definitely confirmed that it was a rare cancer of the liver called hepatocellular carcinoma. And it was, it was the size of a racquetball. And definitely cancerous and high risk of it spreading elsewhere because the liver, it's a vascular organ. There's blood flowing in and out of it, right? So three weeks later, I was in surgery to have that tumor removed from my liver where they they removed about a third of my liver. And, you know, that was like the first time that, I mean, honestly, it took me like, you know, getting out of that getting out of that surgery to realize that, wow, I have cancer. <laughs> I mean, that's how fast everything moves. A very little time to actually like stop and dwell on the fact that I had cancer because they, they move that quickly to try and get the cancer removed out of me. So how long was that time frame from when you got the results of that blood work and the surgery? A few months? Yeah, two months. Two yeah. months, yeah. So I had the blood drawn in mid-March, and I had the surgery in early May, so I guess less than two months. How was your mental and emotional state during that period of time? Um, it was obviously shock, but um, honestly, we were just confused because... I was never symptomatic, right? So um, in the liver, when you go through liver disease, usually you're experiencing jaundice. You're, I mean, there's some really obvious there's some signs. really obvious signs that you have to deal with, right? But I never experienced any of that, and I think a lot of that really, in fact, just about all of it, had to deal with the fact that I was a runner, right? And I was trying to be the best runner that I can, so I was actually quite healthy. So. I remember when I went into that liver clinic the first time when they shared the news with me about that, you know, that tumor marker test. When I went in there, it it really it really scared me because, you know, I I walked in having just finished the LA marathon, right? And I was in a waiting room with people who were just, I mean, morbidly sick. I mean, these are people who've been living with liver disease, you know, most of their lives and uh, you, you saw like the jaundice, you saw the yellow eyes. Uh, I remember this one particular lady, she she was on oxygen, she was in a wheelchair, and she had two of those um, big gallon-sized Ziploc bags just filled with meds. And here I am walking in, you know, in my tracksmith, you know, uh, sweatshirt, you know, uh, sweats and my running shoes, 
And I remember one lady like looking at me and just saying, are you here to pick up your mother or something? I was like, no, I'm, I'm like you. I, I think I have liver cancer. So, so yeah. Um, but to get that official diagnosis that I had cancer, I, I was super confused because I felt really good. And, you know, I, I, like we said, I'd fallen back in love with running and I was ready to get back on that horse to try and qualify for Boston. So I knew immediately that I had to kind of like put everything on stop to deal with this. Right. But, you know, it just, it, we never kind of escaped that level of confusion because they're, they're rushing me telling me that I need to get in for surgery to remove this cancer from my liver. And by the time I came to the realization that I had cancer, I was post-surgery, post-op, sitting in a hospital room, you know, with, you know, this massive 15-inch scar on my abdomen, right? So, so yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a whirlwind, and um, we were never really given an opportunity to dwell on the fact that, you know, we were living with cancer. Did you continue to run during those two months? Um, yes. Yes. Um, in, in those three weeks leading up to that surgery, um, I, I don't know how much I ran, but I, I, I definitely remember running quite a bit because I didn't know what else to do. Because when you're living with cancer, I just, and especially when you're facing a surgery date, right? That was the only way I could just kind of like not only clear my head, but just kind of like just clear my conscience of, you know, almost like refusing to let, you know, the realization of cancer, you know, come into me. I'd rather just flush that out with lactic acid instead, because I just refused to acknowledge the fact that I had cancer. I, I really just thought, let's just cut it out and I could, you know, move on, you know, with my life and my family's life. Did running feel different to you? during that time before your surgery? And I don't mean like physically, I mean, you were asymptomatic. I imagine like physically you didn't feel any different than you did before you knew that there was something going on. But as you were out there knowing like, I'm facing this surgery date, hopefully it gets rid of the cancer. There's all this uncertainty. Um, as you were out there, you know, going going through the, the motions and you're thinking about things, did it feel different than it did before? Did your relationship with it during that time change? Yeah, uh, it, I definitely turned to running first as a source of, as a, not a, an outlet, right? Um, I, <laughs> I remember, you know, sitting in um, one of our pre-op meetings, right, with my surgeon, my anesthesiologist, and I distinctly remember them saying that, look, because, you know, they, they, when they talk you through the surgery, right, they, we also talk about the risks, and the risks were death, 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 right? So whether it's from an infection, whether it's from, you know, my heart failing because, you know, I can't handle the shock of the surgery. So I just remember thinking, not that I was confident that I'd be able to make it through because I knew that I was pretty healthy, but you can't help but for the first time, because I'd yeah. never had any type of surgery before. I'd never been under before. So um, I, I didn't know what this world looked like. And I, I rather than sitting there and dwelling on, okay, Oh, I mean, honestly, like the uncontrollables, right? I, I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, how I'm going to respond. I, I'd rather just 
really kind of like go all in on the things I can control. And that was really just kind of like running. So I, 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 I probably, if, if I look back on my Strava for those six weeks or those for those three weeks, I, I probably put up quite a bit of mileage because I just kind of refused to allow myself to dwell on the unknowns. Well, that answered what was going to be my, my next question about control. Like, did it feel like, okay, there's all this uncertainty. I had no control over this cancer invading my body. I have no control over the surgery that I need to have, but I can control putting my shoes on every day and going out for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, however long you decided to, to run that day. And there's nothing in the world right now that can take that away from me. Yeah. Uh, I, I would definitely say that that's uh, throughout this entire journey more it really has been trying to control what i can control and uh there's not a whole lot in this world that we can't control but as a runner you know that you can control that right and use that as you can wield that you know as a source of strength you know to help mm -hmm. again you know going way back to one of you know uh your first questions about uh applying that perspective on things right so uh so it it, it that was definitely, uh, um, you know, I almost kind of like wore that as a, a, a shield of armor uh, just so that I wouldn't have to face those things that I honestly had no idea, you know, how it would turn mm -hmm. out. Forgive me if this comes across as a weird pivot. I swear that it'll make sense a no, little bit fine. later. But at that period of your life, cancer aside, thinking about running and your relationship to it, your involvement in it, did you feel a part of a running community, whether it was where you live in Southern California or a greater community online through people that maybe you followed on social media or that you followed on Strava, had read about like that sort of thing? I'd, I'd love to just like understand your relationship to the running community at that point of your life. Wow, this is a this is a really great question. Um, I I'll, I'll admit, um, being that type A, right at that time when I was really trying to pursue Boston, I didn't really focus on the community aspect of it. I was really more focused on the goals that I needed to hit, the workouts I needed to hit. So my relationship with the running community was really just with my coach, nothing else, right? So he would prescribe the workouts and I would just go out and, you know, execute what he told me to do. And um, I knew that, you know, we had running communities in my neighborhood. In fact, we have a really big one called the Pasadena Pacers. And, you know, they're, they're an army, uh, several hundred. Um, but I didn't want to tie myself to them because I was really focused on me just trying to do what I needed to do to qualify. And it's so selfish, you know, you know, hearing myself say that because ultimately I, I discovered just the unbelievable value that you can draw from the running community. So I would definitely say I was lone wolfing, um, lone wolfing it when it came to running so uh even though i'd see them run and i'd see that there are some folks who are probably who i could run with in terms of pace i felt like look i just want to do my thing and get out right so um it wasn't until after honestly even even after that surgery i did i i, I still continued to lone wolf it but it wasn't until after my eventual transplant that i would need uh that i really reverted to the running community 
when you would line up for races during that time, say 2018 LA Marathon, which was right before your diagnosis, when you would step up to the starting line or arrive at a race, did you feel a part of a community in that way? Like, hey, these are my people. We're all here to do the same thing. We're going to run this 26.2 mile course or whatever the the race would be and just feeling a part of something bigger than yourself in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think that there was, um, there was a, like a band of brotherhood when you're doing that race, because we're all trying to get to the same finish, right? So and we know that we're all going to struggle. So I would do this thing where like, I, I would never pair up with anyone to, you know, to run a marathon. Um, but I would definitely like when I get to the start line, and you're, you're, you're in a corral, or you're in a, you're, you're in a wave of people, I would, you know, definitely like throw someone a fifth fist bump or give someone a hug saying hey have a great day out there and then we would go and then you know as you're going along especially when you get to those really difficult miles you would definitely shout encouragement but you know it's road racing right and in road racing compared to trail running it's a completely different you know mindset Mm -hmm. in terms of you know uh the communal aspect of it right and I've, i've discovered that for myself just through my own recent uh trail runs but when you're fighting to the finish yeah you'll shout out encouragement but it's still very much everyone's in it for themselves they're trying to get to that finish any way they can right unlike you know an ultra or even a trail race where you're really encouraging you like you will slow down to try and help someone you know move forward right so uh but yeah i i definitely valued the community aspect you know at least at the races because i knew that we were all trying to accomplish the same goal All right, let's put a pin in that. We are going to revisit it a little later in this conversation. But going back to your initial surgery, you have this mass removed from your liver. What was the recovery from that like? How did the prognosis look? And were you able to move past the confusion of it all? Because it was at that point, as you described, that you really realized that, hey, I I, – have cancer. I had cancer. And this is, you know, a, a part of my life right now and something that is going to be a part of me forever moving forward. Yeah. Um, I recovered really well from that first surgery. Um, before the surgery, this is when I kind of got educated on, you know, the science of the liver, the biology of the liver. Uh, I had no idea that the liver regenerated. Um, so when they told me that they were going to remove a third of my liver, I was actually really scared because I didn't know what that would do to me personally. I thought, well, can someone function with two thirds of a liver normally? Mm -hmm. Right. And then that's when my liver doctor explained to me that, no, the liver actually regenerates. So when we cut this out, your liver is going to grow back to full size and function normally. Um, so with that knowledge, you know, you know, in hand, I really felt like, okay, all I need to do is get it cut out of me and it'll grow back it'll Grow back, and I'll, I'll be able to do all the things I love doing. And, you know, I won't have cancer. So who knows, maybe it'll even make me a faster runner. Right. So when I, when I got discharged from the hospital, I actually got discharged earlier than your, you know, typical, uh, liver cancer uh, patient who has the same surgery. And I attribute all of that to my fitness from running, right? So uh, because I had that tumor removed, um, 
my body was just kind of like built to recover quickly. So um, I ended up getting discharged in like less than four days. And typically it takes someone about a week to get discharged from that kind of surgery. And then I actually started running again, probably about, you know, a month after that, because, you know, when I was discharged and I returned home, I mean, it, it, it's massive surgery. It, 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 it's a major surgery. So one of the things that they really encouraged me to do was just get moving, right. To just get walking, stand up and walk mm-hmm. that way you can, you know, um, uh, create circulation and that'll accelerate your recovery. But, you know, for most liver cancer patients, right. They, they, they came in very sick, you know, for those surgeries. So it's very hard to motivate them to even just get out of the bed. But because, you know, but now then I, this is when I like really just proclaim myself a runner. Well, as a runner, I, I must get moving. Right? So, so even though they were encouraging me to run mentally, I was ready to start running as soon as possible. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I definitely accelerated that timeline um, because I was so motivated to get running again. And I attribute some of that motivation to my friend, David, who gifted me a registration to uh, a marathon. You know, typically, you know, when, you know, you're in a hospital, <laughs> right, you'll send flowers, you'll send balloons, you know, like get Maybe well. Maybe a fruit from- basket. Yeah. 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 You no, know, he sent me a registration for a marathon that was only five months away. So it was. A, I love it. Yeah. So I, I don't think he had any intention of me actually like running it, but I think he just kind of gave it to me as like, you know, you know, motivation and his own sense of belief mm-hmm. that I'm going to be fine. Right. So I knew that I had that and I made sure that they had a pretty generous deferral policy just in case. But, um, I, that certainly helped me just kind of like stand up and say, okay, let me, let me just see what I can do. And again, I think just because of my fitness, you know, from running, I was able to get moving really quickly. And I do remember that I was running like a month after getting discharged, which is super unusual, for this type of surgery so so yeah yeah i uh i I started running pretty quickly and then um yeah uh, i I just kind of got right back on it that's amazing how did your outlook on running and life in general change coming out of that initial surgery yeah this um it was definitely a ton of gratitude um I honestly felt like I was cancer free um, because the doctors gave me such high marks in terms of how I responded to the surgery. And obviously, you know, the pathology report that they received on the tumor, they saw all negative margins around it. So they were even willing to go as far as say that you are cancer free, you know, go live your life. But, you know, naturally, I still had to. Uh, follow the cancer protocol, which is, you know, going in for uh, blood tests monthly and going in for uh, uh, MRIs, you know, uh, every MRIs quarterly. So, um, but honestly, I I was ready to live and uh, live with so much gratitude, you know, in my heart. Um, Right around this time is like when I uh, connected with Gabe Grunewald. Um, and the reason why I, did, well, I remember when I got that cancer diagnosis and uh, having survived that first surgery, I remember looking up on the internet, you know, runners with 
cancer, runners with liver cancer, and Gabe Grunewald, what, you know, she basically came right to the top of the list. And mm-hmm. I remember specifically, I mean, vividly, very vividly what, you know, what hit me when I did that search. It was that black and white picture of Gabe. I think it was for women's running and it was her like kind of kneeling and with, with her scar. And I said, wow, Gabe and I have the exact same scar, the exact same scar. So I immediately started following her on social media and I read as anything I could find on the internet about her. And the amount of grace and hope that she exuded really spoke to me. And I kind of took that and ran with it as my own uh, platform to not only, you know, outlive cancer and, you know, live the best, but honestly, just live the best life that I can. And, um, yeah, yeah. So that I, it put this, it, it, it almost elevated me to a place that I'd never been before. This is like, uh, this is uh, uncharted territory for me. I, up until that point, I kept my diagnosis fairly private. Um, I, didn't really feel comfortable sharing it with the world through social media. But by seeing the amazing things that she was doing to advocate for the cancer community, I, I mean, I was honestly inspired to do the same. So from that first surgery, I, I just, I I just kind of find found myself being so much more comfortable talking about my uh, diagnosis and being able to continue to run. So it definitely inspired me to look beyond just that qualifying for Boston. It was really, hey, look, I'm I'm living my best life despite having lived through cancers. I asked you earlier in this conversation about identity as it relates to being a runner. At that point, after you'd gone through the surgery and started to move on with your life. Did cancer survivor fit into your identity? Did you think of yourself in that way? Um, well, I mean, I guess technically yes, because you know, I had can- I had surgery to remove cancer from my body to help me be cancer free. But there was something about the word survivor that I didn't really embrace. Um, I I didn't really feel like I survived cancer because I truly didn't believe and ultimately later down the road come to understand that I you're never really cancer free therefore you, you haven't really survived cancer you're always fighting it right so um, I always viewed myself more as a cancer fighter uh, than a survivor and um so for that reason, I wouldn't embrace, you know, the label of cancer survivor, but I was proud to share with people that I have cancer, right? Not had cancer, that I have cancer and that I will continue to advocate not only for myself, but for others who are also struggling with cancer, particularly liver cancer. And, um, and boy, I mean, again, you know, later down the line, it would really take it another level for myself but you know at the time um 
I definitely uh, viewed myself more as just uh, someone who continues to fight this cancer and not only fight it for myself, but help others fight cancer for themselves. You mentioned a little while ago coming out of the surgery with a tremendous amount of gratitude for being able to live your life and get back to running, which you were able to do relatively soon after you had a a big chunk of your liver removed. When did you start to think about running a little more competitively? Like, okay, now I'm running again. I feel pretty good. I'm going to see if I can chase that BQ again or finish this first marathon that my friend bought me a registration for, uh, you know, as I'm not even out of the hospital yet, that's five months down the road. Like kind of, kind of take me back to that and how you were thinking about it. Yeah. It, I guess you can say it happened organically. And I, and again, I, I knew that I was starting from scratch. Right. So I remember that first run that I tried, it was like a little two mile run that I that I just run around, you know, my neighborhood and it, every single step that I took, it really did feel like I had daggers just being stabbed, you know, through my abdomen. And, um, it was, it was so painful. I felt like I had needles pinching, you know, uh, piercing my lungs because I was struggling so hard to breathe, but I felt so alive. So I would say it probably took me about a month before I could run that two mile loop comfortably right without without a whole lot of effort right so then that that probably took me into like early part of summer and then i really just wanted to focus on just running comfortably right and it really didn't i wasn't paying attention to pace or anything like that it was really just okay just try and pick a spot right and run to that spot tomorrow and again and the next day and the next day and then just kind of look for incremental improvements. It's like how you would coach anyone, right? So, you know, if you're feeling comfortable at that distance, you know, then go ahead and extend the distance a little bit more. All right, now try to run it a little bit faster. So by the time we got to like July, August, which would have been about three months past my uh, surgery, I felt like, wow, I I feel really good. And I, I feel like, you know, okay, I don't feel how I felt you know, two months ago, you know, right after my surgery where everything's hurting. Now I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm running and I'm running normally. I'm doing like a seven mile run at, you know, uh, a pace that is, you know, a little bit more than just relaxed. Right. So I still, right around then, that's when I said, okay, well, we got this marathon that's coming up in (laughs) October. Let me see if I can do a long run. Right. So I do like a 13, 14 mile run and I do it at you know a moderate pace right nothing nothing crazy but i was actually able to like do it so then you just kind of like see these little markers that you hit right like you do with any uh build up in volume for a marathon training plan so that's when i said all right well i got this marathon on the calendar let me go ahead and dust off one of the old uh training plans that my coach gave me i did not reconnect with my coach uh didn't let him know that i was doing this because i i didn't want anybody to tell me that i couldn't do it. Not that I was trying to mm-hmm. do it, but I didn't want anybody to talk me out of it. And I certainly wasn't going to tell 
my medical team because <laughs> they've never had a patient like me. So I knew that they would say, no, do not do this. You, you should not be doing this. So, so I, I joked that, you know, I, I was just making sure that, you know, none of my medical team was like following me on Strava or Garmin. <laughs> just, uh, you know, so, so, uh, so that was a good thing. But, um, but honestly, Mario, I, I felt somewhat normal. I, I felt like a runner again. So I dusted off that training plan and there were like very targeted workouts and it wasn't for me to try and qualify for boss. And I just wanted to see if I was capable of doing, you know, like a fartlek, right. And, you know, with, you know, some at, you know, marathon pace, you know, uh, effort and I was doing it. Right. But again, I wasn't really you know, marching towards a time. I, it's like, I just want to feel comfortable running a marathon distance. And before I know it, when we got to like September, that's when I like hit that 20 mile mark on, on my long run. And I felt pretty good. So I thought, wow, I think I could do this. You know, let's give it a shot. So I, um, from, for the next month leading up to that taper for that marathon, I was, doing everything that was on that training plan to qualify for Boston. But, you know, I, again, the, the intention, the goal for me was really to just kind of like run uh, a marathon distance comfortably, right? Whatever that meant. So, and before you know it, you know, here we are marathon uh, Sunday uh, and it was the rebel big bear marathon and it, it's a rebel race so it, it's a down net downhill race and some of it like extreme downhill which is another element that actually really made me nervous because i didn't know how my body would handle it but i felt like i did like all the work to, to at least make a real good attempt at finishing it right now you mentioned how you didn't tell your coach that you were back in training you certainly didn't tell your medical team that you were training for this marathon but obviously the people who are closest to you your family your close friends I i'm guessing you couldn't hide it from them when you're out for you know three hours or so on a sunday putting in a a, a long run what did they think about you at this point of your recovery back to being like old Phil for lack of a, a, a better term, you know, putting in the miles week in, week out, pushing your body um, in, you know, in a way that most people in your situation couldn't do or wouldn't even consider doing. Yeah. Um, I would say that my closest friends, especially within the running community, and honestly, I, I was still lone wolfing it, right? So mm -hmm. it was really just my friend and my coach. My coach was following me on Strava, and finally one day, like as we were like weeks away from the marathon, he sent me an email, right, saying, "Okay, I see what you're doing. You want to fill me in a little?" <laughs> so I, I i said well i'm gonna try and do a thing you know at this marathon and you know i i don't know how it's gonna go but you know he wasn't you know talking me uh talking me off of it right so and you know my, i would say that my family there i mean they obviously lived through like all my you know um uh all of it yeah they've lived through all of it right um but 
I'd, I'd like to say that they definitely saw that it meant something to me to be able to run mm-hmm. and that because I was running and now by then I was actually, you know, back at work. Right. And I was functioning normally, you know, cause for all intents and purposes, Mario, the, the cancer was behind me right now. It was really just me trying to do those other hard things, right. That, you know, with or without the cancer, you know, I, I, you know, I knew it was going to be hard. So, um, yeah, so I, I definitely had the full support that I needed, uh, that I wanted, but, you know, in terms of like a, a broader community, it probably wasn't quite that cause I didn't have that around me yet. But, um, uh, I, those that, you know, that I really needed the support from, I definitely got it leading up to that race. Take me through that race in big bear. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was crazy. Um, yeah, so we show up on the morning, okay, and I remember specifically, and by then I'd actually put a post out there on social saying that, okay, I'm going to try and do this, and but, you know, I, I don't know how the day is going to go, but, you know, I'm honestly doing this to just, honestly, one, you know, just, uh, just really celebrate the... Being able to celebrate, you know, being Phil again, right? Being able to run, being able to uh, uh, have the uh, have the days, you know, to build up to a marathon and to actually run that marathon. So that 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 was really important to me, and I felt like it was really important to share with you know my little world of you know 120 followers. <laughs> so I, uh, I I put it out there, and you know I, I even put it out there that you know like honestly I'm 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 you know, passing every single mile marker, you know, to honor every, you know, cancer, any, every runner who with cancer who isn't able to run a marathon, right? And then that finish line would be for everyone who supported me, right? So, so I kind of came in with this really, really big heart, you know, of inspiration, uh, you know, to, uh, to tackle the day. So, but I remember talking to David saying, okay, look, I don't know how this day is going to go. I really don't, but I feel really good. So, and David just bless his heart. He says, look, I'm, I'm not running this for me. I'm, I'm running it for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stay with you, right? I'm not going to talk to you, but I just kind of want to make sure you're okay. So we, we lined up together and we, the start gun went off and we, um, it was really just this, this divinity that honestly hit me at that start line and it really kind of like pushed me across the start and just got me going and it got me going so fast i ended up running right past david and i i just kind of like let let the day come to me and um i remember just clicking through every single mile and i never looked at my watch right i was really just running with the gratitude of being able to run. And I just told myself, look, just embrace what the day gives you. If it hurts, appreciate the fact that it hurts because six months ago, you had no, you had no right to even think that you'd have the privilege to feel this pain that you're probably going to feel. But what was weird was that I never felt pain, you know, uh, throughout the run. So I remember just clicking through the miles, never looking at my watch, uh, just smiling, really smiling the entire way down and just kind of giving a nod 
you know, to the cancer world after I crossed every mile. And by the time I got to mile 20, I just glanced at my watch and I saw that I was like way ahead of what my Boston qualifying time was. So my Boston qualifying time would have been a 325. So getting to the mile 20 mark, I, you know, usually you're, you're in good shape if you can get there in like two and a half hours. I remember I was like 220 something, like I was like in the later 220s. And I just remember thinking, wait, this can't be right. Because in my previous Boston qualifying attempts, right around mile 20 is like when the wheels fell off, right? Because mm-hmm. I was I was just holding a pace that I just yeah, I, I just couldn't do it, right? But something really weird happened this day. I, I I didn't feel an ounce of pain. I didn't really feel like I was putting in a whole lot of effort. It was really just me cruising. In my mind, I was really just kind of cruising. So when I got to mile 20, I said, this can't be right, but I feel really, really good. So I'm just going to kind of keep going and see where we're at over the next, you know, 5K. So when I got to like mile 23, 24, I looked at my watch again and I was still just under, you know, uh, three hours. And this is when I thought, oh my God, I'm like, I'm like, like totally in the window right now. So I can actually qualify for Boston like today, like right now. So when you get to like, you know, mile 23 and you see that you're like on schedule, not only that, but you're ahead of schedule, this is when you're like, you know, it's like having a pitcher, right? Throwing a no hitter, right? It's like, you know, just don't even talk about it. Don't even think about it. Just stay away. Just, just kind of keep doing what you're doing. And when I got to like mile 25, you know, I, I saw that, oh my goodness, I'm like, I'm like, in the plus five minute window now right you know to qualify for for boston so i was more than five minutes ahead of schedule so this is when you know it just got so surreal and it was like almost like a out-of-body experience because this is something i'd never felt before this is completely uncharted territory for me i didn't know what to do so i was like just just hold it just hold it don't trip don't bump into anyone you know i i I felt like i held my breath for like the last mile because i just didn't know what to do (laughs) right and then when i saw the finish line and i saw that you know i was still you know sub 320 i that's when i just started crying because i didn't know what to do i just yeah the the finish line was right there and uh my watch you know basically it was telling me that i'd finish about eight minutes, you know, ahead of my BQ time. And then when I crossed the finish, I, I was just a complete mess. I ugly cried the entire way because I couldn't believe what I had just done because I wasn't planning for it. Right. I, all I wanted to do was just have a good day out and celebrate the fact that I can run a marathon. Qualifying for Boston was absolutely the last thing on my mind, but it just happened. So, um, yeah, just an absolutely surreal day. And, you know, I, I remember calling like every person that I know that I just, you know, the, you know, my family, I remember my sister and her husband, they were uh, following the race on like, cause they knew that what a big deal, you know, running this marathon was. But when they saw that I, I had qualified for Boston, they texted me from Paris saying, I can't believe you just did that. So, so yeah, yeah, that was, that was, absolutely amazing and um i i I still can't believe i did it and i still don't have the words to explain you know how something like that could have happened man what a story 
Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. So your attitude is a yeah. hell of a fuel source, isn't it? It is. It is. And to just kind of like put a button on this, right? So my my buddy David, who had run it with me, and you know, all right, he kind of about David. Sorry, yeah, David. <laughs> yeah. So he took that. He kind of took that job, right, to just kind of like to shadow me, make sure that I would be okay. So he finished like, you know, almost like six, seven minutes after me. And when he crossed, right, by then, you know, I had my blanket on, you know, I had a banana in my hand. When he crossed, he was so, he was so stressed. I mean, he had like this look of distress on his face because he didn't realize I had passed him, right? So he thought he had actually left me behind. But so I remember that look on his face and he told me later that he was like ready to go to the race director to, to put out a search for you because yeah he had no idea yeah. where i was but when he saw me at the finish so i was like hey dude what took you so long man so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was uh that was, that was a really amazing but i mean the joking aside i mean we ended up like just hugging and crying and just really just celebrating you know this amazing thing that had just happened so um yeah just something that i'll absolutely tre- cherish for the rest of my life so this is end of 2018. What's the next year or so look like for you? Yeah, um, it, it, it actually shifted on a dime, like right after that race, right? So because I was on the cancer protocol, I'd have to go in for monthly blood tests and um, uh, quarterly scans. So um, right before that race, I had blood drawn. And a month, a month later, they called me in for a follow-up because they had received the results so i remember going into the liver doctor's office and this time i brought you know the marathon medal with me because i figured now is like the time to share the news hey guys (laughs) yeah well easier to ask for forgiveness than permission sometimes yes yes exactly that so so I come in, I show him the the medal, and I, I said, "Hey, I just qualified for Boston. Can you believe that?" And yeah, he was super stoked. Uh, but then I saw the look on his face. He goes, "Okay, look, um, mm. we need you to sit down, and we need to have a conversation." I went, "Okay. Well, your lab results came back, and we've been looking at it, and we've been discussing it with the uh, your surgeons, and um, it." looks like your cancer's back. Um, so they found another mass building in my liver. So, you know, to come from the high of that, you know, uh, Boston qualifying uh, race to now saying, well, we're right back to where we were. The cancer's back. It it was quite a blow. Gut punch. It was yeah. quite a blow. And uh, honestly, that blow was probably bigger than when they first shared the news with me that I had cancer. So... Um, yeah, so that was, that, that was definitely a rough one, but then, you know, the, uh, yeah, the body blow after that was that, you know, um, unfortunately we can't do the same surgery we did last time. Um, you're actually going to need a transplant now. Um, so to now go from, okay, I, I was just replaying exactly the steps that we needed to take, right. To to get this tumor removed from me. Okay, well, let's schedule surgery and then we'll get it removed and hopefully it won't come back. Well, they've already kind of ruled that out entirely. They just said it's off the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- my surgeon, she probably put it in the scariest words, but the most direct way that I needed to hear it. She says, your 
liver has now become a tumor factory. So we need to replace that factory entirely with a new liver. So this is when I was placed on the liver transplant protocol to get listed for a transplant and wait for someone to donate their liver to me. So, yeah, so it, we, we basically jumped out of the world that we're in and landed in a completely different universe because we had no idea what transplant was. That was never on our radar. So to go from, to go from cancer and now cancer plus transplant, it took us a while to get our arms around that. It probably took us a good two months to honestly get our arms around what that meant. And by the sounds of it, as compared to your initial diagnosis, this is a much more uncertain timeline. Um, you got that first diagnosis, and they're like, yep, surgery scheduled for this date. And in your head, you're like, all right, you know, I've got surgery on this date, and I got to recover, and then hopefully I can get on with my life from there. But now you're on this waiting list, and you know that you have cancer in your body, that you have this surgeon's words, tumor factory that is, you know, just, just producing tumors and doing it, doing its thing in, in your body. Um, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. Um, it was definitely the worst place we were because, you know, uh, as a runner, right. You're, you, you're very everything's everything's prescriptive right this is what i need to do to do this this is what mm -hmm. i need to do this you 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 control what you can control right that was completely taken out of our hands now right so now we're dealing we're facing the uncertainty of not only having to wait for a transplant but also knowing that we had cancer still living in me right so we don't know when you're going to get transplanted right so meanwhile you've got this cancer growing in you Right. So um, one of the exceptionally scary part of this process was that, OK, look, I have cancer. I'm going to get on this list at some point. You know, I'm going to get, you know, a transplant. Well, it's it's more complicated than that, only because there's this list. And with that list, right, you're actually ranked. Right. So depending on how sick you are and how severe your 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 liver the health of your liver is that's determines your placement on that list mm -hmm. um so people with end-stage liver disease right you know these are people who are in icu who are very sick or near death right they're typically at the top of the list right myself look i just finished qualifying for the boston marathon right so my health uh um the health of my liver was actually very good. It just had cancer in it that, you know, despite it being cancer, that put me on the bottom of the list. So uh, there's something that they use called the MELD score. It's the model for end stage liver disease. So it's basically a formula that calculates, you know, what the health of your liver is and where you need to be placed on that list. So if you're like in the upper thirties, that puts you near the top. I was a six, which is, basically the equivalent of you know putting your name on you know the sat test so that i was at the very bottom of the list so 
because of my health and my fitness, I remember the transplant doctor telling me directly, you know, to my, you know, to my face that you're probably looking at three years before you get a liver from a deceased donor. And well, I said, well, living with cancer for three years can mean anything, right? There's no guarantee that it's going to just stay isolated in my liver because again, it's a vascular organ. So it could spread elsewhere, right? So it could mm -hmm. spread to my chest. It could spread to my stomach. It, it could, it could, it could go anywhere it wants to go. Mm -hmm. So we just looked at that as not being an option in terms of getting, you know, the traditional uh, transplant from a deceased donor. So this is when they educated us on the living liver donor option. And the living liver donor option is when you would, obviously you're listed, but despite where you're placed on that list, you can actually reach out to your community of friends, family, and colleagues to see if they would be interested in donating a portion of their healthy liver to replace my cancerous liver. So that's when we determine just weighing the risks that that would be our most realistic option of receiving uh, a liver transplant. And it took us about two months to get there because trying to craft an email or a note to you know our family and friends saying, hey, uh, I need a liver transplant, that's just not something that was really in my, it, it wasn't in my comfort zone at all. Yeah, you're not asking for twenty bucks, and I, which I get comfortable. I get very uncomfortable asking for someone to pay me back those twenty bucks, right? <laughs> so to, to to actually have someone, hey, would you mind, you know, taking a couple of weeks off from work, you know, to or a couple of weeks out of your life to, you know, go in and and it's basically the same surgery I had the first time where they would you know, have a portion of their liver removed, but now that liver would then replace my cancerous liver. So that, that it took us a while to get there. How did you get there? What was the response like when you put the call out to family and friends? Yeah, it, it, I, I never was able to do it. So I actually gave that enormous task to my sister to, to push out. Um, I, I just didn't have the strength in me to, to write that and, you know, ask them to do something like this. But, you know, my sisters really took ownership of that. So we worked together on just detailing all the facts, you know, in terms of what was needed. So the main criteria is we need to have a matching blood type. You need to be of general good health and you need to be under the age of 60. So those are the three gateways that need to be met. Um, but, you know, in that email, I remember she specifically, you know, you know, shared, you know, my story, how we got here and where we need to go. And then she also included a link to the uh, questionnaire that's tied to the transplant clinic where they would name me as the intended recipient. And then they would fill out this online questionnaire that would measure not only their physical health, but would also measure their mental and emotional health also, because those are huge elements in the mm -hmm. transplant evaluation process, because you want to make sure that someone is intending on doing this for, you know, uh, altruistic reasons, as opposed to other reasons that may result in them backing out, right? So, so yeah, that that's was 
the that was the content of the email. It went out to several dozen people within our family and friends. And um, what was really frustrating uh, was that we were completely isolated on the responses. We had no idea. So once they clicked on that link, they were being handled by a completely different team at the transplant clinic because they don't want any conflicts of interest between the donor and my team because they don't want to create a situation where someone is being influenced to to do this to save my life right so they they go through an exhaustive screening process to make sure that they are doing this for the absolutely right reasons so it wasn't until the, the, honestly the when i found out who my uh donor was that we found out that there were 16 people that uh, submitted themselves to uh, be my donor, which just blew my mind. I had no That's idea. That's incredible. Right. Right. So, um, but I uh, honestly, I mean, as grateful as I am to the individual who ended up becoming my donor, I am just as grateful to those who click submit, you know, to become my donor because they're, they are just as much of a hero as my donor. What are we talking in terms of a timeline here? Help paint the picture for me. This is 2019 sometime? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I got the, um, I, I was given the news that we needed to be listed for transplant in November of 2018. Then uh, we pushed that email out in January of 2019 because, again, we really needed two months to get our head around uh, what we were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so it was from January till August of 2019 that we were basically just waiting. We, we were completely in the dark in terms of where we were with the uh, donor evaluation. So we had a couple of people, like obviously, you know, family members tell me that they had submitted themselves, uh, but I didn't know. I, I, I get, I, I guess they would have told me if they were actually going through the medical evaluation, but they never did. So like my brother and sister would have been the obvious ones, but again, we're talking hepatitis. So it was passed down to my brother and sister as, uh, as well. So they were ruled out. So if anything, it would have been like a cousin or uh, an aunt or uncle that would have been my uh, donor within the family. And some of the cousins did let me know that they submitted themselves, but nobody told me that they went any further than that. I, I'm sure they would have, but they didn't. So I, we were just completely in the dark in terms of who was being evaluated. So you're coming off this tremendous high of finishing the marathon in Big Bear, tremendous accomplishment in and of itself, given what you had just gone through less than half a year earlier. Not only that, you qualify for Boston. It's this big-time goal of yours as a runner, and then you get this gut punch from your doctor that cancer has returned, and now this uncertain timeline where you could be living with cancer for up to three years and you have no idea what's going to happen during that time. Is it going to spread? Um, who knows? Uh, you have no idea. 
What's your relationship to running look like at this point in 2019 when you don't really have a direction yet and you're still trying to live your life as best you can? Yeah. Um, running now kind of took on a completely different role in my life. Right. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's worn running has worn, worn many hats in, you know, in my time with it. Right. But this was probably its most critical role in my life because I really, I lost all control in terms of what I was going to do what I was able to do with my health, right? Because we are literally just waiting. Meanwhile, I have cancer going inside of me. So I just kind of took it all out on the things that I could control and that was running. So um, I signed up for a number of races and I remember telling my coach, look, I want to run these races. Okay. So um um, I, I, I actually had signed up for CIM, uh, 2018. So that was what, six weeks after that, uh, Revel race. And I qualified for Boston there. Cause I, I was literally just kind of taking it all out on running just, um, cause I didn't know anything else that I could do. Right. Um, I mean, I guess I could have easily reverted to some, you know, terrible habits, uh, like, you know, I, I could have drank, I could have just done some pretty awful things to myself uh, out of frustration, which honestly, it, those would be forgivable things just considering what I was going through. But running was kind of like the only thing I knew. So so I remember running that CIM and qualifying for Boston. But this time I knew that, look, I, I'm running, I, I'm running with cancer now. So I, 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 I almost kind of like made it a battle cry that I was like trying to outrun cancer. Right. So uh, I, I, I ran that, and then I ended up running uh, LA in March of 2019, and I did a course PR that day for that race, and then I uh, ran uh, the London Marathon also, and I had a good day there, um, and then I remember running another marathon in um, uh, in May, and I qualified for Boston there also so i i think i ended up running like four marathons in six months and yeah those four marathons in six months and i I qualified for boston twice you know in those marathons because i just didn't know what else to do uh and when i wasn't running races i was just just Mm -hmm. stacking miles because i i i just kind of like i i i almost just kind of like lost my mind because i didn't know what else to do so um it my relationship with it it was really just almost abusing myself you know with as much pain as i can to flush out you know the the mental stress that i was going through and as a result you know i you know i ran some good races but ultimately i I wasn't able to outrun cancer i i was still living with it because of you know the uncertainty of when my transplant would be did you have this feeling though that as long as you could take it out on running, you could pack away the miles, you could run these marathons, it wouldn't make cancer go away, but it didn't take Phil away from you. You were still Phil as long as you could do these things. Yeah, I tried. I mean, I, I tried my damnedest to, because I, I like to think that I, I'm, 
I have a positive outlook on just about everything. Um, but it was a real tug of war during that time because this was just a place I'd never been before. This, this maddening uncertainty that I was dealing with. And, you know, my, my, my poor wife and my son, I mean, they, they, they would see like the darkest days that I was living. Right. Cause when I wasn't running, you know, again, it was, it was just staring me in the face that, you know, you're, you're living with cancer and you, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So, um, so yeah, there, there, there were some really difficult days to revert back to who I really was. And I'm not sure if I ever really got there. Uh, I, I, I certainly tried, but I really do feel like I, I felt best ironically when I was like hurting myself through just some really awful, you know, and uncomfortable runs. What did your medical team think about that? Um, they were supportive. They already knew I was kind of crazy just because of what I was doing <laughs> post <laughs> after the first surgery. Right. So, yeah. but they, you know, I, uh, I was definitely not your typical liver cancer and certainly not your typical liver transplant. So like when, if you're dealing with liver disease and liver cancer and you have to be a uh, place for transplant, you, again, it's, it's that same, it, it's people with, you know, that, were, that was in that waiting room, right? These are people that are just direly sick, right? And um, I, yeah, I, I know that, you know, my medical team, they had the hardest time just, you know, instructing these patients to just go for walks, right, to get out of bed, right? So I was on the polar opposite of that. I, I, I took it all out on running and running was like the only thing I knew, knew. It was the only thing that gave me like real joy. Right. So they didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> they definitely advocated for it. They said, well, it's better than you, you know, just, you know, sitting around and just waiting for this cancer to mm -hmm. consume you. Right. So, um, you know, their default is always to encourage exercise. Well, I was kind of, dialing that up to 11 because that's just not something that uh they would have to deal with so i again i just i, I keep coming back to that term lone wolf i i felt like you know in terms of you know how i was dealing with it i, I was lone wolfing it right my medical team they weren't worried about me because despite the cancer coming back i was still not symptomatic right so i was still quite healthy you know the liver it is it's one of the most resilient organs in the body so despite the cancer being in it and even going through the first surgery, it was a very healthy liver. So I was still doing the things that, you know, a normal person can do. Um, so super grateful for that. But, you know, I would definitely say as healthy as that liver was mentally and emotionally, I was, I was pretty, I mean, I, I, I was pretty miserable. What role did community play for you at this time. And I want to come back to what we talked about earlier. And part of that community is the running community. You had mentioned how after your first surgery, you started to share a little bit more about what it is that you went through. You posted about the race that you were running. It was known to more people in your circle, regardless of how small that circle might have been. But now you're in a cancer community. You are part of a transplant community. And 
I'm I'm interested in what role all of those things played for you during this period where you're waiting for a liver transplant. Yeah. Um I would say with my with my community, meaning my family, my friends, my neighbors, it it it, it couldn't have been better. They were always there for me. Um and I would say I probably not to shot myself in the foot, but I, I, I definitely kind of like painted myself in this imaginary corner because of all the solo running that I had done. Right. I, I didn't really have a community around me in terms of like my own, you know, neighborly community. So like that running group, I still didn't engage with them. So I was still largely running on my own, but something magical did happen in terms of that word community. And this is actually a a lot to you um um this is when i really connected with gabe grunwald and the brave like gabe community because i you know during this time that i was going through the transplant right and the uh stress of waiting for that transplant i drew so much inspiration you know from gabe uh and the foundation um uh to continue to find hope in um continue to find hope in my future despite my diagnosis and uh the reason why i call you out specifically on this is because right after I got the news of my recurrence, you know, I'd already, I'd already been familiar with Gabe, but you had done a podcast with her. I believe it was like in October of 2018, which is right around just after the, just before the time I got that recurrence. And I didn't, I, I, I didn't listen to the podcast when you released it, but I knew it was there, but, when I got the recurrence, I went right back to it. And this is like the first time I heard Gabe's voice, right? I I was immediately connected with her. I mean, I, it was like, I almost felt like she marked on me just by hearing her voice because she exuded so much grace, so much optimism, despite, I think at the time she was pretty aware that you know she did not have a promising uh outcome ahead of her but despite all that she still embraced as she would say she embraced life as it was in technicolor despite the darkness that she was you know living in so from that point forward this time i made an effort to like reach out to her through social media. So I sent her a DM just kind of like telling her, Hey, look, this is me. This is what I'm going through. And I just want to let you know that um, I'm drawing so much inspiration from you, despite my own uncertainty and with despite my own uncertain outlook. And she responded immediately and I could feel the spunk coming out of her when she responded to me. And from that point forward, it actually uplifted me to a point that I didn't think I'd be able to get uplifted to, despite my, um, despite all the uncertainty that I was dealing with uh, being listed. So 
from a community perspective, I basically adopted the community that she had built through the foundation. Um, and uh, that's where I honestly was able to get to my next day and have a much brighter outlook, despite, you know, it was despite the fact that I had no idea what that outlook would look like. Man, I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, we had that conversation, myself, Gabe, and her husband, Justin, I believe in September of 2018. They came over to my house. I was at my kitchen table. Uh, They had spent some time here in the Bay Area um, when when we recorded that, I think I released it in October that year. Then she passed in June of 2019. Um, and I, I think the last time I listened to that podcast was when I edited it before putting it out. And I, I haven't been able to bring myself to listen to it since. But To know that it had that effect on on you at that point of your life with what you were going through, um, I, I didn't know that. I mean, we've emailed each other before this conversation. I I, I know you, you haven't shared that with me, um, so I, I apologize. It's just like like hitting me right here right now. Um, and um yeah man i mean it's uh it, it's pretty wild one how small this community is but just how connected it is and then also i think for you know for for me and not to make this about me at all like just how uh impactful these conversations that i'm having for the podcast can can be for someone um cuz more often than not i i don't get to hear how impactful they are for someone, but um, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, it, it makes me proud of, of the work that I'm doing and that I can share these meaningful conversations that, that have such an impact, but Holy cow. Um, yeah. I, I, I certainly had no intention of, I guess, blindsiding you like that, but I, you know, I, I, I've, I've been, I've been rather intentional about trying to just reach out to you and praise, you know, the amazing work that you do. But I, I definitely wanted to find space at some point to share that with you. And, you know, it certainly wasn't to, you know, not at all. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm just saying it's yeah. like, I just, I, you need to know that what you provided to me, because honestly, I, I don't know where my future was gonna go but Gabe I mean Gabe and she forged a path for me right and um she gave me almost a call to action from that Mm -hmm. episode and it it really had this divine impact on my life and completely Flip my purpose on its head, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm I'm so excited to you know share with you some of the great work that I've been able to do with Justin and the foundation. But it's it, it really has 
rewritten my script in terms of what I want to do with the rest of my days because I, you know, I'm, I'm still living with cancer, even though medically it may be out of me, but it, you're never cancer free, as I said before. Right. So the best thing that I can do is to honor those who weren't able to continue to move their mission forward. Right. So and that carries, you know, the, and as a consequence, you know, you carry weight as a result of that, which I'm also having to deal with. But, you know, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to carry that weight because, you know, if if I don't do it, I mean, who's to say anyone else is going to do it, right? So, um, so, and I just, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, because if it weren't for that, I would never have been introduced to the universe that is brave like Gabe and Gabe and Justin. It's just, it, it's a gift. It really is. And uh, I, I'm, I'm so excited to, to do more things with it. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you. I, I appreciate you sharing that with me and I, and I'm glad that you did. Um, and I, I think this is, I mean, aside from meeting one another in person, which we're actually like, serendipitously going to do this coming weekend. You're going to be at the Way Too Cool 50K. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be there supporting my athletes. I almost feel like stars are aligning somewhere. Like this this was all meant to be, which is still just like kind of making my head spin um, <laughs> right now. But but I really do appreciate you sharing that with me. I, I'm, I'm interested to dig into this a little bit deeper for you. How did it flip your perspective exactly um like take me into just the the nuts and and bolts of the next steps that you took um yeah so um so yeah i now that i had been lucky enough to be connected with gabe um we would encourage each other so you know by now she you know she was definitely in declining health. And I remember, I think it was in May of 2019 where um, she uh, put her last post up where she was in the hospital. And um, it was right before the Brave Like Gabe 5K, right? So I was already signed mm-hmm. up for it. And when she put that post up, I mean, I mean, the post was, you know, I, I as difficult as that post was, you know, she had that, she just had that, you know, that little smirk on her face that you felt like everything was going to be okay. But inside you kind of knew that this is pretty serious, especially if she's going to miss, you know, the marquee event for her foundation. So I sent her a note saying, Hey, Gabe, look, I'm sorry you're feeling this way and that you're in the hospital but just letting you know i was already registered for the 5k but i, I just told her i said look i'm gonna run a 10k to make up for the 5k that you can't run and you know i didn't expect her to respond because i knew that she was in the hospital but she responded right away and by then she already knew like who i was and what i was going through she responded and just asked me what's the status with your liver donor situation <laughs> and i was so moved by that i mean i was moved to tears because you know, here I was trying to uplift her, right? And not expecting a response. You know, she didn't respond, you know, oh, thanks, great to hear from you. She responded, no, what's the latest with your liver donor situation? And I responded, what are you asking me about my situation? 
save your strength. I'm, I'm trying to uplift you. Yeah. And no, she goes, no, in in her spunk, right. You could feel it. She goes, no, no, tell me, I I need to know. So I said, okay, well, here it is. I, I, you know, I I gave her an update, but again, that that's who she is. Right. So despite her being in, you know, just, just an awful place. Right. Um, she found the strength to care about me enough to know what I'm going through. And again, that's just kind of like that battle cry that, you know, I, that I took from her because I, I really do feel like despite having to carry the weight of what others are going through, it's worth it. Right. Despite, you know, the situation that, you know, that she's in or, or that I'm in. So, um, so that definitely kind of like flipped, that was a that was a really big moment for me, right? I, I mean, I cared about her a lot, but by then, I, it it just next leveled it, you know, to uh, a point where okay, look, I I need to make this a fabric of my life. So, so she passed away about a month after that, which was God. It was so hard on me. It was so hard. On me. It was it was hard on everybody, obviously. But you know, mm-hmm. I'm a guy I'd never met her, and it 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 just absolutely crushed me, and I was just. I was hanging on every single post from Justin, you know, to, to see how things were going. And, um, so she passed away a month later and then I was in a very difficult place because by now all my races were over and I just couldn't, I didn't have it in myself to sign up for another race. I, I, I was just done racing. I was done beating myself up. I, I was like, look, I've done everything I can. Yeah. I've, I've expended everything in my body. When is this transplant happening? I need this transplant to happen. I, I, I can't commit to any more races because it's, it, it's just not doing me any more good. So I was in a very, very dark place at this point. So, so for that, part of the summer you know with Gabe's death and just sitting there and waiting yeah I was at a place that I just it's really scary for me to even revisit because I I just had no hope at that point until one day you know um I'm in a three-way text with two of my best friends and um yeah, I, I've got these two friends, uh, Eric and Mark, who I've known for over 20 years. And, uh, you know, they, they they all live in different states, but we've maintained our relationship through texting. And, you know, we're we're, we're just playing grab ass on these texts. You know, we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're talking. I about, got one of those chains, too. Yeah, I know what you're talking yep, about. It's great. It's great. Right. So and they they never asked about my, you know, my, you know, diagnosis. They never asked for updates because look, we're just the boys. Right. So. You know, we talked about music, movies, you know, our favorite, you know, whiskeys, you know, it just, and just random stuff. And it was great. It, it was like going back to, you know, the animal house days in college, right? So, and one day, you know, um, Mark, you know, he, he sends me a text and this is when I'm at a, you know, that really dark place, but I always found comfort in, you know, in this, you know, three-way text. Mark asks out of nowhere, he goes, hey, what's the latest with your donor situation? And, you know, it was super odd because we've never really talked about it. I knew they cared right. about me, but it was never the intention of this text to get into, you know, my crap, right? I, I was actually looking at this, you know, as a source of relief from it, right? Mm-hmm. But I said, oh, yeah, I haven't given you guys an update, but I don't know. All I know is that, you know, people are being evaluated, but I have no idea where we are in the evaluation. 
And then he responds, well, that's funny because they told me that would that they wouldn't tell me that you knew, no, that they wouldn't tell me about your situation until they told you. And I had no idea what that meant. I just, I was, I was confused. Um, so I responded, well, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he responded, I'm the donor, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I love the levity in that. Yeah, which, best which is a ever. Very best serious ever. situation. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that th- those are the boys, right? So yeah. uh, a little bit of a uh, Breaking Bad Jesse Pinkman flavor to it, but yeah, he uh, dropped that text, and I promptly just laughed my ass off because I I just you know it, it's just the funniest thing, right? But then seconds later, I dropped the phone because then it just hit me hit you. what this meant and i just started bawling because then i realized oh my god you know, mark's gonna save my life so i ran to my wife and told her the news and we're both just crying and shaking you know you know from this amazing text that we received and then i remember oh wait i haven't responded to mark yet i better run back to the phone <laughs> And then I, I read, he goes, um, is anyone there? Maybe we should talk about this. And I responded, sorry, we're, we're still crying here. So, yeah, so that, yeah, so to take me from literally, you know, the bottom of that pit, you know, all it took was those, you know, um, four words to pull me out of it. And three weeks later, he ended up saving my life, right? That's incredible. Have you ever thought about getting Mark a T-shirt that says "I'm your donor, bitch"? Um, well, <laughs> after the transplant, um, we actually ran a half marathon together in Portland. So Mark lives in Portland, and we ran this half marathon called the Heartbreaker Half Marathon, and it was on Valentine's Day, which actually happens to coincide with National Donor Day. So it was like the perfect race. So I had my friend who had a, one of those Crick Cut. Um, uh, machines to put um, uh, decals on shirts. So on my shirt, it said, I'm running five months post-transplant thanks to my donor. And then on Mark's shirt, and we ran side by side, on Mark's shirt, on the back of it, it says, I'm the donor, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Honestly, I had no idea when I asked that question, but it was the first thing that came to mind after you shared that initial text exchange that sort of kicked off this whole process. Yeah, yeah. So that that was amazing. And we got pulled over so many times during that race. Uh, Thank goodness neither of us were trying to PR. I mean, but uh, we... We we were pulled aside to take pictures with so many different people because the story was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned earlier how you have immense gratitude for all the people who just threw their name in the hat to be your potential donor or go through that interview process. How has your relationship with Mark specifically changed since you've had your transplant? Um, it's been great. It's been great. Um, it what was really interesting is that it, it kind of goes back to running again, right? So remember I told you that, you know, the three criteria for um, becoming a match, it's blood type, uh, being under the age of 60, and being in general good health. Well, Mark was a healthy guy, but um, they wanted to be, you know, they wanted to be, they wanted him to be a little bit fitter, they being, the you know, his transplant team, just to make sure that he can, you know, handle the surgery. So, um 
he Mark wasn't a runner at the time. Um, he was just, you know, a, a, a guy in his late forties, like, you know, most people in their late forties, just kind of like hung out. <clears throat> he, he enjoyed a drink, but he knew that for him to see this through, he needed to be in better health. So he decided to take up running. Well, he didn't really hang out with runners. He didn't know runners. He only knew one runner. That runner was me. So one day he sent me a text just asking me for advice on running. And I remember texting him back saying, hey, you don't run, <laughs> but I'm stoked that you're running, but you, you don't really run. So he, <laughs> he goes, oh, no, I just want to start getting in better shape. Well, turns out that he was running so that he can be healthier to become my to be my donor so pretty amazing so now um he is fully in in deep with the running community so he is oh i love it yeah so he he is all about he is all about running now so we follow each other on strava and i'm so stoked to see him putting up the mileage doing those workouts and doing all the things and I don't know, I guess now's as good a time as any to share with you that um, Mark and I will actually be running the Boston Marathon together this April. <laughs> so, big deal. Big that deal. is a big <laughs> deal. Is that going to be his first marathon? It's going to be his first marathon. Oh, yeah. Hell of a way to do it. Yeah, and we're both running for the American Liver Foundation to advocate for, you know, um, obviously liver disease, but then also to raise increase awareness for uh, organ donation, and specifically, you know, living organ uh, donation. Because, you know, donating, you know, uh, uh, a critical organ, it's a very scary thing. And a lot of people think that, you know, it's going to change, you know, my it's going to change my outlook in terms of my health. There's a lot of risk. And of course there's risk because it's major surgery, but look at Mark, you know, uh, two years after that transplant, he's running his first marathon. So, uh, what more evidence do you need than that to show that, Hey, there is a beautiful life after transplant uh, as a donor. Right. So, um, so yeah, that's what we're hoping to help you know, raise some awareness. So as a result, you know, being on this journey together, Mario, yeah, the relationship that I've had with Mark, when we're still the knuckleheads, you know, in that text exchange, but, you know, we now have this bond that happens to be his liver. But as a result, you know, our friendship has just been fortified to a degree that we never imagined years ago. Oh man, that is, that is beautiful. And that'll be so special to run 26.2 miles together from Hopkinton to Boston. And for that to be his first marathon, someone who not that long ago wasn't a runner at all. And now it seems like it's a big part of his life. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's just a day that really needs to be celebrated. And I, I want to make sure that he truly does become celebrated. And it has very little with actually, run, you know, finishing the Boston Marathon. It has so much more to do with what he's done right. as a human. Speaking of Boston Marathon, I mean, it's come up multiple times throughout this conversation. As a runner, it was a big goal for you that you ultimately were able to achieve. But because of what you were going through health-wise and then pandemic, which canceled the race in 2020, you hadn't gotten the opportunity to run it, but then you got to last fall, finally get to run the race that 
you qualified for multiple times uh, in the in the preceding years. What was that like for you to actually get to Boston as a qualifier, even though it was in October, which is not typical, but just to just to be there and to be a part of it and soak it in? Because I remember it had to be 2020 before the race got canceled. I'd have to check my email, but you sent me an email and asked me a question for Ask Mario Anything. And you wanted me to just describe Boston and the atmosphere and the, and the scene and the course and, you know, and, and the people. And I mean, I, I can, I've run it five times. I've been involved in the race to one degree or another more times than I can count. But I mean, it doesn't do it justice. Like me telling you, especially over email, like my experiences at, at Boston, I mean, it could certainly get you excited about it, but I, I don't think it does it justice. But I, I really want to hear from you. Like, what was that like to to fly in and get off the plane and be in the city for Marathon Weekend and then to run this race that had been a major goal of yours for a long mm-hmm. time? Yeah, yeah, it was... It was everything that you said it was in that email. I, I clunked every word that you said uh, on that podcast. Thank you again for answering it. But, um, yeah, it, it. I mean, it's like trying to describe the Grand Canyon to someone, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, there are non-runners who, don't, who could care less. Or, okay, you ran 26.2 miles. But the day was everything I had hoped it would be. Except for the fact that we had that weird rolling start, which I'm yeah, not sure if weird. I liked or I didn't, didn't like. That. Yeah, I, I, so I, I, I wanted. Remember, I was telling you about you know that feeling of community when you're you know in that corral. I wanted to feel that, right? So, but despite all that, we, you know, we we're still on the buses, right, uh, going from Boston to to Hopkinton, and you could just feel the tension, right? And me mentally, I was in a really good place because I've always, ever since that transplant, I feel like I've been on bonus time, right? So no matter what I was going through, whatever I was experiencing, no matter how much it hurt, I was like, I get to experience this. I get, to, I'm getting to feel this. This is awesome. So that, that it, just seeing everybody just tighten up with those nerves, right? And not talking. There was like that eerie, uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, silence, yeah. right? So, which is great, which is great, right? But, you know, I just have this big old grin just saying, this is awesome. So, but then, you know, when we got to the start, you know, again, we didn't have the, for some, I guess they, they liked the fact that they didn't have that buildup of waiting for the gun to go off. But, you know, I wanted that. But despite that, you know, it, it I, God, I'm so embarrassed to admit this, Mario, but you, you saw it, so maybe you can you can appreciate it. But I remember like walking off the bus and heading towards, you know, the starting area. So I remember going to like the porta potties and, you know, taking care of business, going through some stretches. And I continued to just kind of like follow the herd. <clears throat> and I'm just like looking around, soaking it all in. And then uh, I saw that, you know, there was like a start line there. And then I, I just kind of kept walking with them. And then before I know it, <laughs> we're all like jogging and it's like wait wait why are we jogging and then i look behind me oh god we just crossed crossed the start start. (laughs) (laughs) and it was just holy crap i better go now so i i didn't even start my watch or anything so i just kind of took off but then from that point forward it was exactly everything that um that i imagined and what was explained to me multiple times and i completely failed on every level in terms of like, you got to hold back, you got to hold back, don't let the downhills, you know, uh, uh, draw you in. And I'd been warned, I told myself that I wouldn't do it. But you know, when you, 
when it's your first Boston and you're on this high, you know, just all sense and sensibility just goes out the window. <laughs> yep. I, I mean, hey, you just described my first Boston experience as well. And I grew up in the area and I trained on the course and I'd watch the race year in and year out and I still screwed it up royally. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, it, but there's nothing like it. I mean, it's the, it, it is like one of the most incredible experiences mm-hmm. in running. Um, and that, yeah. Yeah. I just, I love, I love that story. I love that you just walked over the starting line without even realizing that you walked over the starting line until everyone yeah. started jogging. Yeah. That's amazing. I yeah, would be I'm, embarrassed, I'm embarrassed about that. Oh, yeah, no, 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 you shouldn't be. <laughs> but, you know, it, but everything, like, you know, the, you know, it, when you got into Newton, right, I, I knew that those hills were going to be there, they're going to be monstrous, and, yeah, it completely kicked my ass, and, you know, I, there were some parts of it where I actually had to walk because I knew that, you know, I, uh, my legs just weren't responding, and I knew I'd still have, like, you know, eight, you know, eight miles to, you know, to get to the finish. And yeah, I, it was a slog. It was a complete slog to the, to get to the finish. Um, and, you know, I had these goals in my mind, you know, uh, you know, to reach a certain time, but the one that really meant the most to me was trying to requalify for Boston at Boston, just, and it was, um, the two, almost the two year, just, just past the two year anniversary of my liver transplant. So to be able to do that two years post transplant, was like just a real slam dunk statement to myself and I guess to the transplant community that life and a beautiful life is possible post-transplant and to be able to qualify, you know, 90 seconds, you know, ahead of my cutoff uh, meant the world to me. And then to be honestly gifted the, uh, um, <clears throat> the uh, gifted the, not- the notice that, you know, everybody who qualified will be able to run it again but now it's like this is amazing i it's it, it, it's it's almost it's almost too good to be true that i get to run it again um and now i get to run it with my liver donor so yeah we've got to wind this conversation down but i've got a couple more questions i want to throw at you before we do and the first is i just started following you on strava today and I can't help myself when I start following someone on Strava. I want to go back and see what they've done. I'm looking at just your mileage chart, and it's pretty steady for the last year. I mean, you are consistent as as they come. And as I'm scrolling through your feed, I realize, oh, at the end of this post, it says dot, 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 keep going. Oh, the end of this post, it says dot, 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 keep going. Well, let me go back a couple weeks, dot, 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 keep going. Let me go back two months, dot, 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 keep going. Let me go back like almost a year, dot, 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 keep going. What is the significance of putting those two words at the end of all of your Strava uploads? Um, it was never intended to project to anyone. It, it really is just a message to myself, not only to keep going, but that I have kept going um and it yeah i've never actually had to explain this to anyone and i was never really prepared to you know have to explain it but honestly it's it it, it's almost like a self-inflicted message to myself that i need to keep going and i think this i started this all the way back to when i was first diagnosed with cancer back in 2018, um, it was a proclamation that I need to keep going. 
Uh, and the only way I can really do that and look at, right, to tangibly look at was through my runs. So I that that's really what it was. It wasn't really to try and inspire somebody else, although I know people have asked me and have told me that, you know, it, it, it meant something to them. And, you know, I'm I'm super grateful to, you know, you know, for them letting me know. But it it's really just uh a message to myself that especially, you know, living in a transplant world, right? Um you don't know when your transplant's gonna come, right? All you can, it goes back to controlling what you can control. And I always kind of created this micro goal for myself to just get to the next day, right? So um, we don't know when that transplant's going to come, but if you get to the next day, you're going to be a day closer. And Mm -hmm. to do that, you need to keep going. And that's how I basically told myself through you know, do those little Strava runs that I, that I needed to keep going. So thank you Man. for asking. Oh, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, and that's really powerful. And I love that you started doing that and are still doing that for yourself. I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to like put myself in your shoes as best I can and just finishing a run and giving it a title and then just typing out every day keep going. And the act of doing that is a a reminder to yourself that I just checked off another day and I'm going to keep going until tomorrow. But just looking at it today, as as I was scrolling back, I mean, it's powerful. Um, And even though you did it for yourself, which I I think is completely valid, it is inspiring to other people. I mean, just just for me seeing that, and I think those words can mean different things to different people. Not everyone, you know, is is living with cancer and trying to keep going in in that respect. But I think we're you know we're all living with something, and we we all should be grateful for each day that we have and looking forward to the next one as best we can. And sometimes we we need to tell ourselves that just to just to keep going. Uh, and I think it's, you know, obviously directly applicable to, to running. You know, you, we've all been in races where we don't want to um, right. keep going. Like it, you want to step off to the side of the road and, and call it a day. And sometimes like just saying those two words to yourself can, you know, can can really be powerful. So I love even more that anyone who follows you on Strava, which, you know, probably I didn't even see how many followers you have. It doesn't have to be a lot of people, but I mean, just for myself, looking back through all these runs and seeing it, like now that seed's planted in my head. And I know someone else who's seeing that every day is, you know, is going to remember that when they're in that spot where, you know, they feel like giving up or they don't think that they can take another step. But those two words may come to mind and, and help get them there. And that's, I mean, that's really, that's really beautiful, man. No, I appreciate you noticing that. And, you know, it, it's, it's like anything, right? Um, I think, Des, it's it's certainly not my words. I actually believe it's Des's where she just said, "Look, there's never a run that you're going to finish that you say, well, God, I regretted doing that.' I don't right. think that exists, and that's I, I, I've had bad days, you know, out on the road or on the trails, and you know, but it's still it, it it's really just kind of like uh, a proclamation that hey, despite how bad that went, I'm going to keep going and I'll be here again tomorrow. So, um, and 
again, like you said, it doesn't have to apply to our run. It just, it was quite easy for me just because, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's on Strava. I I need to enter, you know, how the day went, but again, I, I, you know, if, if it, if it connects with somebody to help them get through their next day, then all the better. Last question for you. What are you most excited about right now, whether it's in running some other aspect of your life or somewhere where those things intertwine? Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm definitely on a road without a map. Um, but I think a lot of it has to go come back to community and I have Gabe and the foundation to, to thank again, to bring this inspiration to me and to, again, kind of repurpose, you know, everything that I've laid out for myself. So, um, I've certainly created a community around me, you know, with, you know, my friends, you know, uh, who I run with daily and, um, Look, I'm not trying to. Um, I'm not trying to um, uh, project my story to try and find somebody who it's going to connect with. Look, it's like, hey, look, I have a story, and if it's going to help you, all the better. But hey, I want to hear what you're going through because my story is not unique. I'm not that special, but I do believe that there are others <clears throat> who are far stronger than me that I want to learn from and I want to build with. And it's like the greatest high for me, really quick examples. Like last week I went on a trail run with a group and this young woman who I, I don't know, uh, who follows me, uh, on social, she reached out to me and said, Hey, just want to let you know that, um, I've been following your story and, you know, I, I've been going through my own challenges with, cancer with because of my mother who passed away from liver cancer and she's a runner also and we've we've immediately made this connection we barely knew each other's names or i barely knew her name but immediately i said look you're somebody that i can build with who i'm going to chart help chart this road with right so let's do this together because again what you have to share is extremely powerful and inspiring, not just to me, but to so many others. So let's do it together. So if it's through running, fantastic. If it's through joining a support group, even better. So I I don't know what, what this road's going to look like, Mario, but I definitely feel like there's so much hope in front of us that I... You know, I, I, I'm super stoked to see, you know, where it's going to go. And I, I just have this amazing community around me to help me get there, help our, you know, help all of us get there. It's a beautiful place to wrap this one up. I appreciate you sharing your story with me and my listeners. I've loved this conversation. I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the course of the past couple hours. I'm excited that I get to meet you this weekend, this podcast Definitely. won't come out until sometime after that. But I mean, in, in this moment, uh, that is really exciting to me because it's just a few days away. I, I really do think it was serendipitous in a way. It was it was definitely meant to be. And I thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, thanks, Mario. And thank you for creating this universe, you know, for all of us to to, to share in through this silly little activity that we, <laughs> that we find a common interest in. So thank you.
big thank you to New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Peachtree Road Race for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 from New Balance is an absolute workhorse and has been my go-to trainer for some time now. It's available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. Precision Fuel and Hydration has a wide range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best in training and racing. Head to precisionfuelandhydration.com and use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. Then book a free one-on-one video consultation with the team to refine your strategy for your next race. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TMS22 when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. Lastly, member and lottery registration for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia is going on right now. The race returns to one day this year and will take place on Monday, July 4th. Atlanta Track Club members receive guaranteed and lowest price entry. Non-members must enter through the lottery and will be notified if selected on April 4th. In-person registration is only open until March 31st. Virtual registration is open until May 31st. You can register today at AJC.com slash Peachtree. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial and social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.